Hello and welcome to India Speak, the podcast by the Center for Policy Research. This is the first in a series of podcasts particularly focused on climate change and looking forward to COP27 or the meeting of the Conference of Parties uh, to the Climate uh, uh, Convention, which will be held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt in November this year. As many of our listeners know, this is an annual feature on the climate uh, calendar. And uh, in preparation for this, uh, CPR is putting together uh, a series of, uh, of podcasts and we look forward to welcoming you uh, to all of these. Today, we are kicking off with a conversation uh, with Professor Harold Winkler, who's a professor at the School of Economics at the University of Cape Town. And he's widely known in India for his work on equity, sustainable development and climate linkages. Uh, Harold very importantly straddles academia and policy. So on the academic side, he's the editor in chief of the well-known journal Climate Policy and has also been a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. On the policy side, among his many different hats, uh, he is a member of the South African delegation to the climate uh, uh, talks. And very important for us today, he is one of the two co-facilitators of what is called the technical dialogue on the global stocktake uh, of the Paris Agreement. So welcome, uh, Harold. It's really great to have you uh, with us today. Thanks, Navaras. Uh, lovely to be with you and have another chat. Indeed. Um, and uh, I, I just want to, before we get into this, I, I th thought it might be useful for our listeners to explain this array of acronyms that I just threw out there, Global Stock Take, Paris Agreement, uh, and so on. So let me take a second uh, to explain why we are particularly privileged to have Harold uh, with us today. Um, so the Paris Agreement, which was signed uh, in 2015, sets up a process called the Global Stock Take. And the Global Stock Take is meant to, as the name suggests, take stock of the implementation of the agreement. It covers mitigation or the reduction of emissions, adaptation to impacts, and also what in climate code is called means of implementation and support, including things like the provision of finance. And all of this critically in the light of both equity and science. So the stock take is meant to inform parties in updating and enhancing their own national actions. So it is a key part in what some have called the ratchet mechanism for the Paris uh, uh, Climate Agreement, because the Climate Agreement has countries put on the table their own actions and then ratchet them up over time. And the global stock take is critical to that process. Now, Harold is in turn critical to the stock take because he is one of the two co-facilitators uh, of this process, uh, of the technical dialogues more specifically to this process. And uh, the Sharm el-Sheikh uh, climate meeting is where the second of these two technical dialogues will happen. So Harold is a key player in, in a sense, refereeing and steering what is a really important moment uh, in this coming meeting. So apologies for that long introduction, but I think that sets the, the, the tone really for, for where we're going. So with that, maybe Harold, I can, uh, we can start a conversation about this. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more, having gone through one of these technical dialogues, how you see the global stock take really playing a role in the unfolding of the Paris Agreement uh, and the actions of, of parties. What, what role can we realistically expect it to play? 
Thanks, Navros, and that's a very clear explanation of, of, of the role overall. Taking a step back, um, we know and we knew before Paris that what countries do in, in, in their nationally determined contributions every five years is not going to be enough. So when you add up the mitigation parts and all the NDCs, it doesn't put us on track to the goal, the temp global temperature goal of, of 1.5 degrees or even to well below two. And so the global stock take is really, as you said, the ratchet mechanism and it's increasing ambition. We know that um, the sum of what everybody does in their own political economy will not be enough. And so we get together on a five-year cycle that's offset by two years. So two years later and say, how do we all individually do more, raise our ambition, and how what can we do more together to solve this global commons problem? And just one last thing on that. Ambition definitely applies not just to mitigation, but also what does it mean in relation to adaptation and in terms of the support, the finance that you mentioned. And it's a lot more than that, but I've stopped it. No, I think, I think that really helps because, as you say, the, the context for this is under the Paris Agreement, nobody expects countries right off the bat to do what is expected and necessary by science. So we need to have some mechanism of 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 of, uh, of, of ratcheting it ratcheting it up, as we uh, as we both said. Now you've gone through one uh, technical dialogue uh, in the middle of this year. Uh, you and your co-facilitator have 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 steered one such dialogue. And I'd love to uh, hear your reflections back on that process, given, as we understand, that the purpose of this dialogue is to inform the stock take and this ratchet process. What were the kinds of things uh, that you heard? Um, and in particular, I'd, lo I'd love you to um, talk a little bit more about something you've, you've discussed in your report, which is the uh, discussion over implementation gaps. You talked about ambition a fair bit in what you just, uh, in your introductory remarks, mm. but a lot of the reporting was about implementation gaps. So can you sort of tell us what you learned about that? Why, why is that particularly important? Well, the first uh, technical dialogue in, in Bonn and June, there are a lot of things that were not surprises, right? We heard about all these gaps, the emissions gap, the adaptation gap, the finance gap, and indeed the implementation gap. And I would add that I increasingly think of implementation as being part of ambition. And that's exactly what it means, right? So sticking for mitigation for the, at the moment. We know that the sum of NDCs uh, is, is not putting us to, on a path to consistent with 1.5. But also those targets are just on paper. They're in NDC, right? And they've been an important piece of paper communicated to to the framework convention. Uh, sorry, just, uh, just to cut in there, the NDC being the nationally determined contributions that countries put on the table. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. So all these acronyms flying around. But so having a target in, in a contribution that's nationally determined is one thing. But the atmosphere only sees it when you know, a wind farm is built. Or, or, um, and, and so the gap to the implementation gap and mitigation is around around that of what actually is is implemented in the room and in that sense what we really need to do is do more take more enhance action and also in relation to adaptation i do want to uh, uh, mention a little bit about that because it's very important we're seeing the, the ipcc and what we heard in bonn right so working group two and three of the intergovernmental panel on climate change brought in their findings and we know a lot of these things we are observing the impacts day by day we have floods in kwazulu natal heat waves in china all over the world leading not only to the need to adapt to those impacts but even what's called loss and damage which is also a really important part in the even broader scope of the global stock take and this is happening 
to farmers in Kenya, from farmers in Kenya to mudslides in Canada, right? And countries are no longer, it's the point where you're no longer able to cope. It's so bad. No, absolutely. And I, and I think I think it's really important that the scope of the of the stock take and the dialogues therefore stretches not only to mitigation, but definitely also to adaptation, uh, loss and damage and, and, and finance. I, I want to come back to those uh, in just a second, in part, because I think we all expect that this next COP, COP27, is going to actually be quite strongly focused on some of the issues around adaptation and, and loss and damage. So maybe come back to that in just a second. But before we uh, go there, I wanted to pick up on something else you said with regard to the implementation gap. Um, in a sense, the, the stock take and its technical dialogue operates at a global level. But surely a lot of the implementation issues are very specific to particular national economies. You know, why, what is the reason why coal is slowing down at a faster pace in one country or another, or solar is growing at a, at a slower pace in one country or another? What are the very context-specific issues? And this is something also that the, the, your report mentions is the context specificity of this. How did the stock take kind of grapple with this? The fact that, you know, you, you, your mandate is really to talk at a global level, but a lot of the implementation issues end up being nationally specific. Did participants talk about some of the very concrete issues uh, that they faced in country? Um, I, I think participants started to, but I hope in Sharma Sheik, uh, we will have a lot more than that. And, and many parties and non-party stakeholders, importantly, also very much part of the technical dialogue, said we need to move from the what. We had a good discussion about what. What are all the gaps? To the how and how to. And that is the implementation question. And very much this is at two scales, as a lot of your work is also focused on this interaction and hinge between this, right? So the outcome of the stock take is going to inform parties when they nationally determine their next NDC. So those next NDCs are to be communicated in 2025. So we end the global stock take in 2023, and then essentially South Africa, where I live, will start its homework, its preparation for the, the, the next NDC, which there is a provision of progression that must be more ambitious than the previous one, right? Um, and the, the, the outcome of the global structure also informs international cooperation. So there are ways in which maybe we can restructure the way finance works or do, you know, actually make technology really be transferred, whatever it is. Um, so there are things internationally, but, but that link is a soft link because um, in Paris, it was not possible to say, no party will accept that the outcome of the global stock tech tells us what its next uh, NDC will do, because that's an integral part of NDC that those contributions are, are, are nationally determined. Indeed, indeed. So, so, so it's, just, it's a good way of putting it that there's a, a soft link. Do you anticipate that in addition to spurring international cooperation, which is part of the hope, and spurring countries to go back and revisit their NDCs on a nationally determined basis, that there might actually be some kind of learnings across countries through the conversations uh, in the in the stock take on the how questions. Oh, oh definitely, and and I mean, my co-facilitator Fan and I are thinking about that, and and these uh, and you know, a lot of the inputs have we've raised this idea of having a technical appendix in which you know good practices and and ideas could be collected. Being careful about that, you know, menus of options from which parties can choose, not being prescriptive to any country. But, you know, India might look at another country and say, oh, that's actually a good idea. And, you know, we that would also work in our context. Um, and the other thing that I haven't yet mentioned, which is really important, what we've tried to do is 
<clears throat> because explicitly uh, the technical dialogue, it is a party-driven process, but with participation by non-party st party stakeholders, that means firms, that means mayors of cities, that means civil society, that means a wide range, nine observer constituencies, farmers, right, um, indigenous people, and so on. Um, and bringing the so-called action agenda into the negotiating process is also important because who takes action? It's not just governments in a country. It really depends a lot on what, in the end, everybody does, what citizens and consumers and prosumers do <laughs> um, and what firms do and and so on, you know. What Coal India does, just to not to put too fine a point on. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed, and and I I think I think it's it, you've explained very skillfully how as a co as co facilitators, you're sort of trying to walk the line, uh, staying very firmly on one side of not being prescriptive because that is very much part of uh, your mandate, while nonetheless providing all the information in forms that allow all these various actors, state and non-state, to, to engage with it. And, and uh, I should say, having watched Harold uh, for many years play these roles, there's, you know, it, it, there's a lot of skill in walking these lines, uh, uh, making these processes much more than formulaic, yet uh, sticking to the, to the mandate, which is which I think what Harold uh, described very nicely just now. Um, maybe we should turn, as I, as I had suggested we would, uh, to the questions of adaptation and, and loss and damage. And I want to pick up one word in your report. You said that there was discussion of transformative adaptation. And I think that's, that's, that's quite an intriguing idea. And, and perhaps you can explain that to us a little bit, but also perhaps from there expand into uh, perhaps your expectations of what may be a charged context uh, around issues like loss and damage, given that this has been a year of such severe climate harm, given that we have, uh, you know, our neighbor uh, uh, here in India, uh, which is, of course, Pakistan, his, his a third of its land area is flooded, um, and Pakistan, not coincidentally, is chair of the Group of 77 in China, which is a very large negotiating bloc. So, so maybe talk us a little bit through the substance, and then we can drift over perhaps into, into what it implies uh, for uh, the context within this, which this conversation uh, is happening. So I, like you, am a mitigation researcher, but when I read and hear from Working Group 2 about transformative adaptation, it's a... No. It's a binary on a spectrum, but there's transformative adaptation, which is kind of ambitious, good adaptation, and maladaptation, right? Sometimes adapting, but then the unintended consequences of those actions actually make things worse, right? And so we want, um, you know, that's heuristic, right? Um, but I think when, when one asks oneself the question, which Fine and I did, what does ambition really mean in relation to adaptation? It's not as clear as we, at least in my mind, as, as it is. And so as to say, a way of doing um, adaptation that, um, that that really transforms systems, and that is this is a question that we will explicitly also raise in in the technical dialogue in Sharm El Sheikh. How do we transform systems? And across both working group two and three of the IPCC, you know, this these are not just the you know how do we transform energy systems is one question, but how do you for, uh, transform agricultural systems has a lot to do with implications for for adaptation and another key phrase from working to climate resilient development right so how do we get to climate resilient development and you know my favorite phrase now for us from the ipcc shifting development pathways to sustainability so that we have a broader approach to mitigation we don't just think about yes we think about pricing carbon and doing all the more narrowly conceived mitigation but we think about 
climate policy as an all of society, all of economy effort. Um, and so, yeah, I'm drifting off a bit. So <laughs> rein me in. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that those are those are those are all really important uh, terms to, to to evoke. You know, climate resilient development and uh, and this idea of transforming systems. It, it leads me to actually. Uh, uh, ask a question, uh, and, and I will come back to, to some of these issues, but I want to ask a question that immediately follows from this, which is that when thinking about the role of something like a stock take, do you think of it as part, in, in part as a narrative building exercise? Because as co-facilitators, the way you sort of pull this material together helps tell stories about the climate challenge uh, that that might have a lot of power because they're backed by all of this input from a wide range of, of people. And as you and I both know, Harold, and, and this is in part what the IPCC does quite well, is it becomes a mechanism to kind of focus attention on a phrase and an idea and a concept and, and propel it forward. So is that is that sort of one of the ways in which this uh, um, uh, the stock take and what comes out of the facilitative dialogue might might usefully contribute as well? That's, I think that's a very good point. And yes, I think, and, and specifically the technical dialogue phase, I think, so by, when, when we have the last of these three meetings of the technical dialogue in Bonn in June next year, but we will, after that, Fahan and I will write some key findings. And those key findings will be effectively key messages with supported by a narrative and by numbers, right? I mean, it's not, not exclusive of those, but really, the numbers in order to tell the story of you know, how we are going to change in ways that we haven't before, because we know before we started that we're not doing enough. So I, I think very much so, but also something perhaps we haven't made clear enough yet is the third phase of this. So there's an information collection phase, a technical dialogue phase, which I'm co-facilitating with fun. And then there's a consideration about what's the so-called, loosely called political phase. So the technical dialogue does not make decisions. So in the second half of next year, those key findings or those narratives will be then considered by more in the usual negotiating style. So the contact group perhaps develops a decision text, a high level group may come up with a, a declaration that sends political signals to the outside world, but also about what needs to change within the UN climate regime. Uh, that's where this is going, but the, the stories are very important. Right, right. So, so just to, for, for, for listeners who may not be familiar with this process, a lot of the way in which these meetings work is a textual document of some sort is prepared. It is then subjected to scrutiny and discussion among governments uh, who then who then sort of vet and revise it. And in a sense, what Harold has described is that more political end game of the of the uh, stock take will will be subject to a similar sort of spurring of dialogue and hopefully coming of agreement coming to of agreement uh, uh, among 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 countries and indeed i think i think if some sharp focused uh, uh, narratives and ideas can be propelled it would be a a contribution uh, for sure um i wanted to talk a little bit about about um well maybe let's just come back briefly to whether you see the uh what many commentators have said is an invariable focus on loss and damage in particular at this COP and loss and damage being this idea that there are some impacts of climate change that cannot be addressed because there are real losses and damages that have been realized um, and, and those need to be compensated uh, in a sense. It's a, it's a fraught idea in climate negotiations because many developed countries are worried about, about in a sense, 
the idea of being held to account uh, uh, for these uh, for these damages. What do you think? Well, I, I, I can't ask you to, to speculate clearly, but do you see that becoming a big theme for the technical dialogue uh, uh, this time around? Uh, how might one deal with what will surely be quite hot running sentiments around this, given the damages we've seen this year? Yeah. So in the technical dialogue, what we managed to do in, in Bonn and will continue on Sharm el-Sheikh is so we have these three thematic areas that you named, adaptation, mitigation and support, but also in the decision in Poland in 2018, also loss and damage and another concept response measures. Um, and effectively, uh, the, the discussion, so we have these roundtables that discuss, and one of them is on adaptation, including loss and damage. So that's how we framed it. And that seems to have been accepted by parties and non-party stakeholders. So that's, so definitely it's part of the technical dialogue. It was a big agenda fight in the other meetings, uh, in one, but I see that, it, that loss and damage is now on, on, on the agenda of, uh, for, uh, for the COP or more technically the CMA and it will, it will be on the agenda in. So, so that's the first thing. <laughs> if it's not there, then you have no place to discuss. There is a place to discuss it. And I do think that that's very important. I think there will be. And it's, and particularly as you've mentioned, the, the issue of, uh, the funding of loss and damage is particularly the sharp end of that question. And there, so to me, uh, speaking, you know, and <laughs> for myself, that's also a fundamental question of equity. So you and I have many discussions as others. So how we divide up the effort of mitigation is one question or the benefits from doing mitigation these days, right? Um, is one question. Who pays is clearly another question of equity, but the one of the fundamental injustices is that, uh, is that those least responsible for the problem of climate change with the lowest emissions, respectively poor communities everywhere, and particularly in poor countries, cannot adapt. And then they suffer a lot. And when they suffer loss and damage, then basically, I mean, I literally watched the video of, of villagers in Pakistan on CNN, like streaming away. And the, and the CNN anchor said, there is no one here. Right? People are paying not in money, but with their, you know, with losing their houses and, and in some cases even with their lives. So that's obviously a deep injustice that needs to be addressed. On the other hand, and this is in the decision in the the countries who would be expected to pay uh, do not want this to lead to compensation or liability. And there's a paragraph in the Paris decision adopting the agreement that says that. And so it's this very careful edging towards having that discussion. And at the moment where that is at is, does that get done? So does that get done through a facility, which has been a demand by the GSM, or do you go to the practical and say, let's get that money actually flowing to people, not only in Pakistan, but people suffering heat waves and right. you know, France suffered heat waves a couple of years ago. Yes. Yeah. It's not just it's not just in developing countries. No, absolutely, and as and as you say, uh, as you say, terribly fraught in the in the slightly um, uh, convoluted and long drawn out conversation that are climate negotiations. Uh, as you've mentioned, what often counts as a success is establishing a process, um, and 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 it may be hard for people outside to understand that. But sometimes, you know, getting a foot in the door and saying there will be a facility. 
uh, in itself uh, can count as a victory because down the road that facility or that process may then lead to some conversations that ultimately lead to uh, uh, lead to uh, to money to to support uh, and so on. But it is a frustratingly uh, uh, slow uh, process. And and in that vein, I, I wanted to actually talk a little bit about about uh, what the technical dialogue uh, in June said about about money, and and. And if I might sort of uh, say this, that while I found some of the other texts quite interesting and a lot of ideas on finance, and of course, this is not your fault, you only work with what, is, what, what participants say, but on finance, it, it basically seemed to repeat the mantra that we've heard, that we have to move from billions to trillions, and that the current amounts fall short of the promised $100 billion that developed countries had promised. And so it seemed that in, in the finance realm, the conversation remained a little bit, little bit stuck, a little bit turgid. And I wonder if you see any pathway beyond that, uh, particularly given that we are operating in a world that, as a recent speaker to CPR put it, it's a world of polycrisis. Um, this was a new term to me, but it's a very apt one, you know, and, 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 and I don't need to list out all those crises. Uh, but obviously, it has implications for taking forward the finance discussion. Uh, so, any reflections on that? I think that's fair comment, and and there's also, you know, I think um, you know my my perception of of those discussions around finance. I think the and you know, Fan and I have been discussing this for a long time. So there, you know, there are these almost two worldviews. There's actually literature on this, right? So there's Article Two One C. One of the objectives is to align financial flows with climate resilient and low emissions development. So that's really a, a perspective where you shift significantly also most of that money as private money into those directions. And then there's um, the Article 9 worldview, which is a phrase you used earlier. It's about providing money. And then the, you know, it used to be under the convention developed and, and, and in the Paris Agreement reaffirmed, developed countries have an obligation to provide money to the two developing countries. But the world no longer looks like it did in 1992, right? There are those, and so the, we do. You know, the 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 technical dialogue in Bonn, I think, laid out a lot of those things. The one thing where I would say that you know, sort of edging forwards was, um, and this is in the long 80-page proceedings, right? So findings from the IPCC um, uh, that. The scale of funding is three to six times below what is needed to be, you know, might be needed for pathways consistent with 1.5 on the mid. I think that's important. It's a very clear statement. It goes beyond the 100 billion. And then, then again, we get into the constraints of the process, right? The new goal of uh, a new quantified goal on finance, which would be higher than 100 billion, is being negotiated elsewhere. So there are things there that, um, that are that we cannot really deal with. We've thought a lot about that, uh, Fahan and I, and and want in in Chamochek to get into. We don't think you know it's, it's unrealistic to expect that we and in this technical dialogue suddenly all these difficult issues. I think in one intervention I, I counted seventeen of them being rattled off. Right. If we could make some progress on three of those, I would consider that um, uh, good. Um, and there could be things like responding more to the needs of uh, the balance of funding for adaptation mitigation those kinds of issues but will we unlock them all in the technical dialogue um i don't think is realistic and 
I'm completely with you. The process leads uh, moves much too slowly uh, for given that we are in a climate crisis and emergency amongst many, many other crises. But, you know, as they say, it's a bit like they, what they say about democracy. Multilateralism is the worst possible system until you look at right. the alternatives. We just don't have anything else, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I, I think, unfortunately, that is, that is true. Um, uh, well, one of, the, one of the things perhaps that the technical dialogue can do, just harking back to the earlier part of the conversation, is to try and find different creative ways of talking about this, the narrative building that, that finds uh, new formulations and you know, perhaps creates new allies uh, around that. Um, so, so, uh, I want, so just, I know that- If I could are, just jump in there, Navros, please, um, please do, just yeah. on, on that, because one of the things that certainly I was hoping, and I think we've achieved to some extent, was to change the way we have the conversation. And so what we did in Bonn is we had a World Cafe setting now in workshops. Some of your listeners will be very familiar. Oh, that's not at all innovative. In the UN process, that is very innovative. So to put negotiators together with others around tables where they're asked to move around every 30 minutes and have a kind of brainstorming discussion. And that was well received with a lot of anxiety afterwards. It was, and and in, in Sharm El Sheikh, we'll do two new things. We'll have um, a creative space where people can literally come and perform poems and show films and, and other show art. And we've also asked for, for posters. So everybody's made a submission, which are well over 100 now to come and highlight. So we are trying to change the way we have the conversation because I really believe if we don't do that, we, the outcomes will remain as slow and as unsatisfactory as before. So, that, that's that's actually really interesting, Harold. Uh, uh, to to actually have some process innovations is, is in what is an incredibly stodgy process. And and for the listeners, you know, these the way these negotiations work is people walk around and there's a bit of a a caste system in terms of the color of your badges and therefore what access you have with you know de government delegates having a certain color badge and certain places they can go and others with other colored badges not being able to go there and uh, arguably the media is is is, is the, the the lowest in that hierarchy but but i but and my media friends shouldn't take that seriously at one level they have the biggest voice um but uh, but actually as you say creating spaces where this mingling is both encouraged and facilitated is, is indeed uh, is indeed quite uh, 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 quite novel and 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 I look forward to to seeing um, how it plays out this time uh, as indeed it, uh, you know you said it you, you experimented with it last time um, I, I don't want to conclude this conversation Harold without talking a little bit about equity something that both you and I have spent uh, many, uh, uh, you know, much of our careers writing about and, and, and talking about. And the stock take very explicitly says that this has to be in light of equity. What does that concretely translate to? Does it translate to uh, ways in which you frame the conversation, ways in which you frame the questions, which of course the questions come uh, in a sense from other parts of the process. Uh, how do you make sure that that doesn't get set aside um and 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 where have you seen fruitful conversations about this very yeah. important phrase in light of equity well to start off with we we'd write them into these summary reports and i, I was quite um pleased but also amused when the delegate from india in this virtual consultation we we held on on the 6th of october hearing reactions to our, our summary report so the first thing they did was search for how many times you mentioned equity and we're happy that we've mentioned it many times. So, so there's there's a there's a place to discuss. In terms of the substance of it, uh, 
uh, partly what we say, right? So in relation to mitigation, there are many framings, right? From the equitable allocation of carbon space uh, to, to procedural equity raised, for example, by Canada uh, in, a, in a submission to the one that I find interesting and some South African bias perhaps comes through, but I think I heard very different voices talk about just transitions. And the plural is very important each, and we say this in the IPCC, the transitions will be different in each place. They'll be different in India to, to South Africa. Um, and at least it seems to be a place around which uh, some discussion can take place and quite concrete implementation can take place as well, um, including financial support for financing these transitions and making sure that that's finance does go to mitigation, but doesn't ignore the social justice element. So that's, um, but then also it goes to what we mentioned earlier that, you know, funding and loss and damage is also fundamentally an issue of, of equity, right? So what does equity mean in relation to adaptation, loss and damage and finance? So, right. um, and, and just, just for our, to remind our listeners that, that the term just transition is something that has really achieved a lot of currency, starting out with a conversation, uh, perhaps narrowly about in particular communities that might be, say, dependent on coal and other fossil fuels having to, over time, find new livelihoods. But I think the concept has become much more elastic, uh, although that, that, issue, that transition remains at its, at its core. Uh, and, and it's opened up doors to, to uh, uh, sort of broader conversations about the structural changes that are needed to address climate change and what that might mean in terms of who gets left behind and, and who gets taken along. And South Africa, of course, has been a pioneer uh, in this in this uh, in this conversation, so I, so I, 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 it is interesting that you say that there are all these ways in which equity uh, enters the conversation, and I and I and I'm really glad to hear that people are talking about things like procedural equity as well. Um, while of course India's position on this is 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 always welcome and important, it would be sad if it were reduced to a bean counting exercise of the number of times the word is cited, uh, and 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 that we take the the uh, take the uh, substance forward. I just, just now, Ross, if I can, can I mention one more on that, which is on, on, on equity? And I'm not sure where this will go. And I will actually need to look back at how, how it occurs in the report so far. But I have heard people raise the debt issue. One of the many crises is the debt crisis. And that particularly post-pandemic, many emerging economies didn't have fiscal space going in. And China apart um, are getting deeper into debt. And when it comes to now, you know, the huge opportunity cost of spending money on climate is, you know, distinct from development, although, of course, we argue it's not entirely distinct, but still, right, to the extent that there are trade-offs and there are synergies, but there are also trade-offs. If you even more, you know, that's a matter of equity of, of how do we, if it continues to be loans, well, in the end, those loans have to be repaid. And what is the, you know, not in the technical dialogue, but in civil society more broadly, you know, uh, we'll call for a jubilee, right? What, what is this? Will those debts be written? How are we going to deal with that? Saying spend more money on climate while, and meanwhile, you know, and many countries in Europe are taking up more debt uh, for war, right? Effectively to support a war and, you know, one side in the war in Ukraine, right? Um, yeah. It's, it's complex and it is definitely polycrisis, I think is quite a good term. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, your invocation of debt makes me think of a conversation I was in yesterday, one of these pre-COP uh, events where somebody I thought made a useful remark that a lot of times we are, um, the developing world is, shows up and has the agenda and the narrative kind of already pre-established. We're not creating uh, uh, narratives and agendas 
that address some of the issues that are top of mind for us. And so bringing on the table issues like what, how, how do we undergo a climate transition or climate uh, transformation in the context of a debt-ridden society or a debt crisis? And bringing that to the table proactively, I think, is, 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 uh, 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 is interesting. It also, it also makes me reflect that your task as a co-facilitator is incredibly hard because at the same time as this is a, a climate uh, uh, negotiation, it's invariably tied to all these other things. But the more things you put in the bucket, the harder it is to have a focused conversation. Yet, indeed, I think we do need to draw those, draw those linkages. So, uh, so I, I think you're, you do have your, your work cut out. What, one last question, Harold, and then, and then I'll be let you go. You know, um, what might you say to people who are skeptical of this process? So the idea behind a ratchet, of course, and we started with this idea that the, the global stock take is very much part of the ratchet mechanism of the, of the Paris Agreement. Part of the metaphor of the ratchet is that it has teeth, right? That, that it, has, it has ways of encouraging action and stopping backsliding that might move beyond what you described as soft linkage. So there are those who say, well, yes, we can see various ways in which these conversations can be productive, but is that really up to the task of what we uh, what we need from a global cooperation process right now? Uh, so I hear those kind of comments, and I think my may, my basic message would be: don't write off this process before giving it even one chance. Um, so the global stock take is the mechanism that was agreed and. In Paris, it'll go, it'll repeat every five years. Uh, this is the very first time. Um, and, and, and I don't disagree that, you know, you haven't even seen the result yet. Don't prejudge that it will fail. Maybe it will. Maybe it, you know, will be called a success, as you've said, uh, Navros, in the narrow terms of, uh, of the UN climate regime of having set up processes and sent some messages, but not success measured against what's really needed out there. Uh, that's very possible. But I would advise, I would say to those who are skeptics, think very carefully. If not this, then what? Um, you know, what, do, what is your alternative then? Are you putting your hopes into the mitigation work program and the work program on the global goal and the, all these ad hoc work programs that were, um, sorry, ad hoc, they were, they were work programs stores in Glasgow, which have a limited time. Some of them are even struggling to get onto the agenda, like the one on loss and damage, right? So, so yeah, and, and essentially, obviously, I have a bias here because I'm co-facilitating this process and want to make it work, but but it seems to me um, that it's, yeah, that, that it simply doesn't make sense to write something off before it's even happened. Um, if we look at the world more broadly now, and, you know, it, it sometimes feels like we're going back to the 19th century world of, of great powers with, you know, spheres of influence. If we live in that world, then we will not be able to take climate action, I believe, because everybody will be for themselves and, and we know that this global commons challenge needs collective action, which means multilateralism. This is the process under the multilateral agreement, the Paris Agreement, which is not perfect, but it's the best we have. And so I guess the other phrase I would use, no, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Let's make the GST as good as it can be and help us doing that rather than writing it off up front. I think that's a really uh, well put and resounding uh, message in a sense to to invest in the process and engage. And I, I really like the idea of not 
uh, of the way you put it, of not writing this off even before we've gone through it once and giving it uh, a once chance, one chance. And speaking as somebody from India, and of course you're from South Africa, the idea that this is indeed multilateral and the alternative then is a bunch of fragmented conversations. We're hearing a lot about climate clubs and so on and so forth. Uh, and the fact that this is under the auspices of, of a multilateral process, I think is, is also a really important uh, a reminder uh, to, to all of us. So Harold, let us uh, maybe close there. We could talk about many more things. I would love to hear more about South Africa, but we're running a little short on time. Uh, you of course have a lot of work uh, in the national context uh, uh, as well. There are so many other things that you're involved in, uh, but uh, let's just say that this is not the only conversation and hopefully not even the only podcast uh, that we will, uh, that we will uh, uh, share. Um, and uh, let me then just uh, end by wishing you well for uh, the, the process in a few weeks' time. Uh, you know, more power to your narrative building abilities, uh, as well as your abilities to, uh, to corral uh, disparate actors and occasionally as the need uh, presents itself even to bean count when you have to do so. Uh, so my thanks to you, Harold. Thanks, Navros. It's been a pleasure as always to talk to you and um, yeah, uh, look forward to many further conversations. So thank you all for listening. Uh, for more information, please do follow us on at CPR underscore India and on at CPR underscore climate. Stay tuned for more conversations leading up to the COP. Uh, and thanks again uh, to Harold Winkler. <laughs>